Governor Evers. My name is Marshall Jones. I'm a 39-year-old man incarcerated in the Wisconsin prison system, where I'm currently housed in Red Granite Correctional Institution. I've been confined since July 28, 2003, and I've been sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Of course I want a pardon or clemency, whichever works best for your office, but that is not the reason I'm writing you this letter. The purpose of my letter is to shine a light on the forgotten group of people, people who have essentially gotten the book thrown at them. I speak on behalf of the lifers or the people who have so much time they can imagine the life beyond these walls. I believe we should at least qualify to the topic when prison reform is ultimately addressed, and I will map out my reasons below. No one wants to be the person who spearheads calls the other than properly placed attorney calls may be monitored and recorded. <sighs> no one wants to be the person who spearheads an experiment that fails when it comes to community safety. But what I am asking is that we begin to look at the lives tossed away by the court system and behold how salvageable we really are. Fear is a quality that leads to stagnancy and another generation will pass away if we are not proactive in prison reform. I'm in no way taking away the horrors our victims have endured, nor am I discounting the negative impact our crimes have had on our communities. I just know that there's immense wealth beyond these prison walls and the humanity that sometimes far exceeds the humanity in free society. Marshall Jones has been using his time in prison in many productive ways, including mentoring, education, and growing spiritually. But one of his biggest passions has become writing. You just heard Marshall reading a letter he wrote to the Wisconsin governor, but you will also hear his poetry and written experiences in this episode. Jessica Christensen generously captured these recordings from Marshall, and you will also hear Rebecca Barber, also known as Boss Ladies, conversation with Jessica about her experiences working in a prison. On this episode, we are considering what prison is really meant for in the United States. As our country and community continues to deal with the pandemic, those that are incarcerated continue to face the pressure as a way of life. We want to share some of our connections to those incarcerated and returning citizens and the reality of their experiences here in Wisconsin. This is Eli Steenlidge. I'm Rebecca Barber, also known as Boss Lady, and you're about to hear some justified anger. Some say I'm just a number. A thumbnail on the manual of offenses to have forgotten the mid 23,000 men and women. How can I measure up to the scarlet letters, perpetual judgments of people of seen sentences with no incentive to be positive? Who sees life imprisonment as a corrective measure when there isn't a second chance given? Just pitched into the prison system and keep broken off until we're used in some tough on crime initiative. I wonder what my judge would say if we had a conversation 17 years later. Would he be adamant to cast me away forever? Would he attribute my change to the same prison system that tried to break my spirit? Would he admit that he was wrong about his analysis, calling me evil incarnate, deeming there nothing salvageable within? No one sees me ripping that success and daily expressions of love, counseling the downtrodden, convincing brothers there's hope in their breath. Statistics say my recidivism rate is less than people with a month left yet who broadcast my coverage report and legacy assessment. 
Our nation is in need of prison reform, but it begins in our homes, continues through education, ascends to our cities and beliefs and to our state. Can you hear the can being kicked by timid politicians too afraid of their constituents to push for change? Whether admitting hindsight that things should be handled differently than do something substantive, while people like me watch them drive with no engine headed nowhere. Some say I'm just a number, 366-231, relegated to a lifetime of prison where the sun will never rise again, if only they know the truth. Hi, I'm Jessica Christensen, and I'm a former recreational leader of one of the prisons here in Wisconsin, and I worked for the prison system for nine months, and I am no longer employed, but I am very thankful for the time that I had working through the DOC because it made me realize how, how much reform is needed in our prison system. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and, and your feelings and just your situation and your experience from probably another viewpoint that a lot of the listeners may never experience. So you said that you were the uh, recreational leader and what kind of what kind of tasks did you have then as far as interactions with those that were incarcerated? Um, I worked shoulder to shoulder with um, the incarcerated all day long. I administered basketball games, volleyball games, any type of recreation programs and hobby programs for the inmates to have an outlet. And I'm before I worked there, I was a personal trainer through Anytime Fitness for 10 years, and I was super excited to be able to work with people that were basically considered castaways and really, really show them that there's more out there. And when I started there, I um, was told that it was a rehabilitation, mm. um, rehabilitation level. So that's how I went into the job, was thinking I was adding to their rehabilitation and helping them become productive citizens of society and using recreation as an outlet for for the time that they're incarcerated. Right. And so once you got into that job and you started doing what you thought your job role would be, was there any surprises? I mean, did they push back on you for doing what you, you know, what they told you you'd be doing? Oh, yes. They pushed back on me a lot, especially because, one, I'm a female and I was in a prison for men. So automatically they considered me as a risk, I would assume, because I was watched like a hawk by staff, which I'm very thankful for because, I mean, I, I felt a sense of protection, but I also felt a sense of, of um, discrimination because I am an attractive woman, and whether the men came down there to see me or if they came down there to participate in activities that I administered, um, it was... It was an interesting, mm-hmm. very interesting um, environment. Yeah. The flip side of that token, I think, is it's important for, I think, people to understand that, you know, a lot of the individuals are going to be returning to society. So when you are just around um, men all the time, 
that interaction to be able to interact with a woman or someone maybe that you don't see on a daily basis, even if you take men and women out of the picture, it's just also the be the ability to learn how to interact with someone that is considered staff or considered general public and not general population. Those are all still tools that are needed for reentry. So, you know, the, the, set, the fact that you got pushback on it instead of encouragement for, you know, thank you for prepping these guys on, on how to interact appropriately and things like that. It's, you know, it's kind of disheartening that you're, you're, they're taking away from tools that they can really use, especially upon reentry and applying for jobs. And, you know, those first initial moments that you you interact with people that you haven't seen on a daily basis and try to get back into the swing of things with, with the reentry challenges. Exactly. And that was the very frustrating part because when I went in there, you know, I don't, I don't care what you did to get in there. I'm still going to treat you by, treat you like a human. I wasn't going to treat you like a number. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to make sure these men had that sense of humanity felt by me because, you know, they didn't do anything to me. And right. I wanted to encourage them and help them become those those citizens that they want to become because nobody wants to stay there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. They want to succeed outside, and that's what I was trying to do. And what kind of what kind of treatment did you see them receive from other staff as far as uh, their dignity or just in in general interactions? Is there anything that just really stood out as far as how they were treating versus how you would be um, treating them? Um, a lot of impatience and um, a lot of a lot of oh. He's an inmate, so he's automatically a liar. Mm. And that's the type of thinking that they teach a lot of the correctional officers that all inmates are liars. Mm. Well, okay, if you're going into that with that type of thinking, how can you help them rehabilitate? You know? Mm-hmm. One thing one thing that really bothered me, I remember being in a meeting and administration administrative meeting and we were at the table and it was the deputy warden and some psychiatrists there, some social workers. And the way they spoke about the inmates, it disgusted me. Because here is the administration that is supposed to be helping these people. And the way they spoke about the, the inmates, it was just disgusting to me because you know, you don't know the history of a lot of these people or you have the different levels of mental health issues that they deal with. Mm-hmm. And instead of being a collaborative table, they were just, they were degrading them. Mm-hmm. And I really left that meeting feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just heard all that. And then they would laugh and joke about things that would happen and completely desensitize that these men are human beings you know what I mean absolutely and then some of these things that you're hearing them discuss I mean how how did you see that impact those incarcerated as far as the mental health aspect of things you know knowing that the people that say that you are in our care are actually turning around and and you know assuming that you're liars or laughing at you or poking at you and things like that how did how did you see that impact the mental health of those that are incarcerated knowing that 
the ones that are supposed to be caring for them are feeling this kind of way and making these assumptions with that. And there is a major sense of defeat in a lot of them, you know, feeling like, oh, there, there's no reason for me to do this because it's not going to get me anywhere anyways. Mm-hmm. Prison was never designed to reform people. Prison was always designed to punish crime with hopes that the amount of time a person spends away from free society will cause a redirection that will incite change. A building is incapable of changing anyone, and a system can only give a person programming for a person to build upon their own skills. The tough on crime policies that has blanketed the criminal justice system since the 80s have all been reactionary policies with punishment in mind. The crime bill in the 90s was designed to target so-called super predators by increasing prison sentences for crimes across the board, especially drug offenses. In Wisconsin, the truth in sentencing law wasn't designed to change criminals, but to punish criminals by giving them obscene sentences without parole. The new sentencing law was hoped to be a crime deterrent by using the people's sentences as public examples of what would happen to someone if they were unfortunate enough to come through the system. Since then, Tommy Thompson has admitted that he was wrong about truth and sentences effectiveness to stop crime. But All calls other than properly placed, attorney calls may be monitored and recorded. But sadly, the law hasn't changed. The Wisconsin prison system is way overcrowded. Too much policy, but so little change. Why? Because prison was never designed to change people. And did they yeah. did they talk with you too during during rec and say things like you know um, as anyone seemed to be helping them when they need to maybe file paperwork or get prepared for reentry or reach family members or things like that like were you a source of connection did you hear them say like this I'm not getting any help or sources or were they saying that um, you know they each have a social worker and they're connected with someone or what what kind of things did you see from that point of view. Um, sometimes I would hear they would get the runaround, and it really depended on the social worker that they had. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some good social workers, and then there's some social workers that are definitely just eating up state pay and sitting there and twirling their thumbs. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also, you know, there's, there's also, you need to be an advocate for yourself in there. And the men that are advocating for themselves they would get more help rather than um, those that didn't speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And resources, so, are, is that available though? I mean, is that something that those ones that maybe needed a little additional assistance, did you see them uh, struggling even more because they, they couldn't get to that point? Or did you, um, what, I guess, what, I kind of, what kind of reactions from the staff did you see? I think... Um, with resources, I mean, a lot of them would have their have resources that they could access, but then you would be put on a waiting list. Like, men that have a lot of time, they would be put on the bottom of the barrel because they have so much time mm. to, to serve. So, like, Marshall Jones is a perfect example. He was no longer allowed to take a lot of the, a lot of the classes or what is offered to him because of the length of sentence he has. And then men that are supposed to be out in a certain time, they they get picked before others that have uh, quite a bit of time to serve. You know, and that's so, unfortunate because some of those that have longer t sentences, 
if they had the access um, to be able to make that change, it could potentially change the length in their sentence. So it's kind of a catch-22 yeah. situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, there's, like, a lot of them that have a lot of time to serve. You know, they end up making their own program um, to be able to benefit themselves. And that's something that I speak with Marshall. And I saw while I worked there as well. Mm-hmm. The way he would he would um, lead and um, put brothers under his under his arm and help them prepare for release. So yeah, and oh yeah, no, and I was going to say, you know, Marshall Jones is actually someone that's written into the station for many many years as well, and so I'm actually familiar with some of his work and you know the the published items he's been working on and has worked on and continues to work on and he's always sending in uh, a positive quote to be read over the air to help brothers and sisters that can listen to the radio and that's not any facility that can tune in so he's always been very um, encouraging despite his circumstance and it's you know it's interesting that you uh, you say he can't really do much anymore because of the length of time but also you know I think this applies to some other gentlemen as well that once you've taken all of the courses and the classes and the hobby and the things like that that you they have available you really you tap out there isn't anything else that you're allowed to do prison has nothing to offer but services we can use to continue to process the change and over the years these services have become more watered down and less resistant I have completed almost all of the programs they recommended for me. The only ones I have left are the ones they're telling me I have too much time to take. I have developed my own program. Bible studies, devotional writing, job, poetry writing, letter writing, memoir writing, tutoring and counseling brothers in here, studying a plethora of subjects, Frank Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture being one of them, and building effective bridges with people in society. Prison didn't facilitate this grind I now partake in on this next level. Their programs are changing my life daily. It is me, God, and my amazing help me and this beautiful support system that facilitates the most amazing desire to go to sleep at midnight and wake up at 5.50 a.m. on fire to master my day. No system, no prison could ever give me the passion I have for life or the deepest affinity I have for people. Prison didn't make me renounce my gang affiliations, stop using drugs, drinking alcohol, fighting or practicing lawlessness. Prison was incapable of changing me. God was. My spirituality deals with freedom. And in freedom lies the power to choose success or failure, life or death, progress or failure. What do you think? This prison reform people, let me know. Marshall can be a, an encouraging, you know, that's, that's, that's great, but overall, how do you see that impacting, I guess, the mental health portion of it when, you know, when you reach that limit of you can't really sign up for this, you already did this, and you can't do this anymore, and you can't do this anymore. I mean, luckily, like we said, you know, Marshall can kind of act on his own, but as an overview of everyone you've worked with, that's not really the norm, right. is it? No, no. I, I think of a couple of guys that worked for me, and you can tell that, you know, he talked to me about what got him there, and I can tell that he he battled with guilt and and everything that put him there, and he was just he was like, well, 
how it is. This is how the rest of my life is going to be. And he, like, totally accepted that this is the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And then I think of, I think of other men who are my workers, and he was awesome. He is, is sentenced for a long time as well. And, you know, seeing his mental health, I mean, he reminded me of just a Zen man. Mm-hmm. But it was because he he would he had to do that to be able to to be able to get through knowing that this is what he's something you know accepting that oh this quote unquote is the rest of my life so I'm gonna make the most of it you know right and then you um, you know you see some that have long sentences but then there's also you know I think that especially right now working with the general community, there's a lot of, when you mentioned, you know, free some of the prisoners and, and reduce the population, a lot of people think instantly that you, you know, everybody's got these long sentences where obviously there are some, but I think the reminder of a lot of individuals have outdates <laughs> that they will be coming home. Yeah. And I think there's a misconception there that just because you know, you're, you're in that prison that you deserve to be there. And I mean, what are your thoughts on that? As far as, I guess, you know, you've been, you've been walking on, you've walked on the inside, but also, but not as an inmate or an incarcerated person as staff. And so I guess, what is some of the, the most important takeaways that you've seen that like that have really touched your heart from being on that other side? That, that, Hmm. Something that I didn't like was how a lot of them were, how it just pulled together. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, I talked to this one guy that was being released, and I was encouraging him before he left, and, and he said he didn't have anybody to go and help him. His parents had disowned him because of his drug addiction. He was addicted to heroin, and he was. He would work out in the gym, and he he was kind of worried about getting out because he knew what he was going to go back into mm-hmm. and what was going to be out there waiting for him. I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. And he didn't have that support system to go to. And just having, having those people on the inside to give that encouragement, it's I didn't see it a lot because the most of, most of the people that they interact with are correctional officers because mm-hmm. the officers are the ones that quote unquote are always watching and they're on the units and then the social workers and the rec staff and the administration they're there from like nine to five basically mm-hmm. you know and they're harder to get into so you know the people that could really, really encourage them are the ones that are working with them daily, and those are the ones that probably degrade them the most because they become desensitized by by basically living with them. You right, know? And right. That's something that really, really bothered me, and that's also something that bothers me now because I see it with my son. My son is now a correctional officer at Jackson County Institution. And um, I'm seeing a desensitization happening with him. Mm-hmm. Um, 
with just humanity in general, and it really hurts my heart. And I actually corrected on it, corrected him on it today. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like you do not, you do not fall into that thinking. You are working with people, Mm -hmm. people, regardless of what happens. You know, everybody's got a story, and you don't know what the backstory is. Right, and what you said too was very, um, was very important. You know that you mentioned it seemed as if they were pulled together. So that's a really an interesting point for some people to understand. Is that you know there's there's people that are incarcerated that actually do have mental health needs prior to going yeah. to the prisons. There's other people that are in there that have mental health needs as a result of going to the prisons, but didn't have them prior to going. And then, like you said, there is some that suffer from addiction, which is more of a treatment issue than a punishment issue, because being in the jail facilities or the prisons isn't going to address their addiction or rehabilitate properly. So I think that that's really... That was really an important thing that you mentioned. So thank you for for saying that, how pooling together like that really does desensitize because at the end of the day, when you have these officers that are looking at all of them as a number and not really knowing their situations individually, it really sends them, you know, it kicks them back out into the world as not having any connection other than you know, other than if you have family or, or anyone that you're able to write to, things like that. So, yeah, good right. point. And then I wanted to ask you, too. So you you had left before COVID hit the prisons. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so now, but you, um, let's just touch on, on uh, Marshall Jones for a second. So Marshall Jones, um, like I mentioned earlier, he's written into the station, so I'm also familiar with Marshall, but um, you had worked with him when you were working in the facility, um, and then you now are in contact with him still after you've left the facility, but now it's COVID. So now looking at that situation, yeah. knowing how he was and how the situ- situations were when you were there versus some of the things he's telling you now, um, what kind of changes, I guess, have you seen I mean, I would consider him to be a loved one, you know, so, so see, he's one of your loved ones, you know, you know him, you've been known him, you can identify patterns in his behavior, in his talks, and obviously he's still an uplifting individual, but at the end of the day, what kinds of um, changes I think have you seen since COVID's hit that have been maybe new challenges or new struggles that really weren't there before? Well, I would have to say that me being part of his life has really probably helped balance him through mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. because he hasn't had a visit with family since, since February of last year. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine, you know, being incarcerated and having visits, having visits through your incarceration, all of a sudden them being revoked, and then you're still supposed to keep keep your composure, mm-hmm. and you're going through all these new all these new um, new standards because they're on modified lockdowns, and with modified lockdown rules change at will of the institution, right? And you know it. Ha- 
happens, it happens, and then when it happens, there doesn't have to be any reason behind it or explanation. It just is because this is what we say. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that's been difficult for him having to, and not just him, but the brothers he's with. Mm-hmm. And I know the unit that he is on, um, they ended up having to move a bunch of men out because of um, rules and regulations changing and just the reaction of what, the reaction of the rules changing just mm-hmm. on the wind like that was very difficult for a lot of the guys to, right. to process. And he had... He had a situation where he had spent um, quite a bit of time in another facility and then was moved to a different facility and then was moved again now to another facility. Yeah. So something like that, too, I think people have to understand, you know, that also takes a toll because, you know, you're you're around people that you see every day. Like you said, the closest people that you speak with is, is going to be the officers, but a lot of times it's kind of in a degrading, degrading manner, excuse me. And then you kind of form a relationship or a friendship or a camaraderie, if you want to say, with those around you that are also incarcerated, but then you're up and shifted and moved to a whole new facility. And then, like you just said, they have all different types of rules according to what they want to run that facility like. I would think, you know, that's a lot of strain, I think, on on anyone, really, to be able to readjust. Oh, yeah. yeah, and and for you having to adapt, and acclimate to a situation. I mean, you think about it out here, how we have to adapt to change where we have the freedom mm-hmm. to be able to move as we want, yet then in the prison, you have to acclimate and adapt to the change under these rules, and you don't have the freedom to be able to move at will. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that has been has been interesting to hear how it's affected him and and others and you know he he is he is probably um probably more um, level than most because of many of the outlets he has with his poetry and his book writing and he did write in the past seven months he wrote i have in my hands i have his next book that's going to be published which is really exciting. And that's something that really helps him because it's taking his mind off the lack of visits. Absolutely. The lack of, yeah. And the lack of um, family being able to come and see him, friends being able to come and see him. So mm-hmm. not all the men have outlets like that. Now, and he, he yeah. was, what was he? He was like 17 or 19 when he went in. Is that correct? Um, I know he was in and out. Before he caught this case, mm-hmm. the, the sentencing that he is serving now, he um, received at the age of 21. 21, okay. So 21 yep. when he went in, and then he received life. A double life sentence. Double life sentence, okay. And he is what age now? He's 39. He has served 17 years of his sentence. So he served 17 years of a uh, double life sentence. He's basically, you know, taken any all any courses that are available, has been writing the poetry, writing books, um, has been, 
you know, reaching out. I, I know, like I said, over the course of the past 10 years, he's written into the station and it's never switched up. It's never changed. He's always had the same character. See, when people look at me, they find it hard to believe that I have a license. For one, I don't carry myself as some overly aggressive convict, wrecking everything that comes into view. I don't look for fights, and in fact, I search for peaceful places amid the hostility of prison life. I'm gentle, jovial, and I search for common ground with everyone I share my space with, staff or inmate. And people look at my movements that I read and write the majority of the day, grinding like my outdate is tomorrow. I'm lucky if I sleep five good hours before I'm awakened again to tackle the plate that I've made for myself. Yet again, I have had a slew of great accomplishments over my incarceration and still look for new ways to challenge myself and reach the community inside and outside of prison with positive interactions. I spend two or three hours a day studying my Bible and I aim to live out my faith. I don't look the part anymore and most are surprised that I'm still in prison. Too many have said I don't belong in prison anymore and to that I totally agree. So what changed the convicted murderer, ex-gang member, former drug seller and user and former criminal? Was it the weight of the life sentence pressing against my shoulders until I relented and became a good boy? Was it the prison system itself with its many rules and policies designed to conform my behavior? Was it the many horror stories seen, heard, and spoken of that scared me straight? What changed me? Most wouldn't believe me when I say that prison is incapable of changing anyone. They will be quick to suggest that because I was in prison when I began to change my life, that prison was a catalyst to my change. Truth be told, it was nothing in prison that ultimately changed me. It was something outside of prison that changed me. You know, the hard part for me is to look at at what point do we feel rehabilitation can take place? Because we have overcrowding in the prisons. Right. I understand, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this something, too, that you've been looking into and, and uh, he's been discussing with you as well to try to see if there's any way to get some sort of second chance or, you know, some sort of determination where, um, you know, there can be a, a chance at life, you know, especially during a pandemic, yeah. especially after having 17 years served already, especially after all of these things. What kinds of steps or or, or actions have you either taken or are you hoping to be able to take in looking at, at that for him? Um, we have actually been taking steps. Um, I do run a Facebook platform that he puts daily devotions on. He builds these daily devotions, and I post them on this Facebook platform called Forged by Fire, Iron Sharpening Iron. And um, Marshall, Marshall, I believe, is truly called by God to um, preach the word, and he helped counsel brothers in prison with it, and now he has this on the support platform, and there's a bunch of members on there that read it daily, and then it also is posted on Red Thread Poet. Red Thread Poet, okay. And, and that's actually reached worldwide. There's poets from from um, Australia, from from Europe, all over the world, and they actually created a platform on that website for Marshall because they were so impressed by the gleaning that he had from 
the doctrine that he was, or the devotion that he was putting together. Mm-hmm. And they wanted him to have his own platform, so it's also posted daily on there. So it's amazing to see a man that is incarcerated for a double life sentence, and he's helping people outside mm-hmm. the walls of prison to reach freedom. And, you know, that's something that always struck me about Marshall even before I really got to know him, was he lived more free within those walls than any person I've ever met. And another thing that um, he's done is, actually on the Moses Facebook platform, I had seen a um, post from Matthew Rice, I believe, Mm -hmm. and um, he had left the information for Governor Evers, and I challenged Marshall to write a letter to Governor Evers from the perspective of a man that is sentenced as long as he is, Mm -hmm. yet is reformed and rehabilitated. And he wrote this beautiful letter to Governor Evers talking about giving a second chance to the lifers, basically the guys that have had the book thrown at them and saying that saying that they are incorrigible mm-hmm. and it's, it's a great letter and I hope it's seen because because it is it really brings a light to people that have basically been forgotten I guess you'd say Dear Governor Evers we just want the chance to be heard and be a topic of discussion because we are still a people capable of change and restoration. May you be blessed with the ability to do all that is in your heart to do concerning the citizens of our great state of Wisconsin. I pray for you as you overtake your responsibilities. Thank you for your time. Respectfully, Marshall Jones. Um, I guess, too, at this point, you know, you have a platform now to share, and I thank you for everything that you have shared. But is there anything in particular, too, that that either you want to close this out with, um, final thoughts, or either on your own behalf, or considering, you know, like I said, the viewpoint that you've had that most of us won't have of what it's really like being inside there? Um, and then also, if there's anything that you know directly that Marshall would want the listeners to know as well? Um, something that I reflect on a lot before... I worked for the prison. I remember thinking that, and this was years ago, I remember thinking, oh, they belong there. They, they, those, those people, they belong there. You know, they need to, they need to have the punishment for whatever they did. And after having that time, working with the incarcerated and seeing it firsthand, my viewpoint has changed so much. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful to be able to have the new view that I have and have basically have the scales lifted from my eyes and seeing how much reform is needed for, for our state and for our country. Mm-hmm. And um, I think more people need to have that same type of viewpoint and you know I think something with Marshall that he would like people to know is that 
that just because he's incarcerated or he's been sentenced the length of time that he has doesn't mean that that's who he is. And the judge, you know, the judge that sentenced him and said he was evil incarnate, if he was to have a conversation with him right now, would he still have that same view? Mm-hmm. You know, right. to deem somebody unchangeable, yeah. I think that's wrong. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen in their life to make them have that turning point of wanting to be reformed and wanting to be restored from whatever path they came out of. And I think a lot of people forget also that, you know, people don't, not everybody chooses to make that crime, you know? Mm-hmm. Sometimes your upbringing chooses you and you have to fight through to survive the life that, that you've been dealt. And sometimes fighting through that life you've been dealt can end up some bad choices that if you had been given a different life, you wouldn't have chosen that. That's very true. That's very true. And unfortunately, you know, that's that's a daily topic and that's something that um, we'd love to be able to open more eyes to as far as, you know, the pipeline to prison, school to pipeline, um, school to prison pipeline, excuse me. And, you know, just many, many years of creating a narrative that I think um, is so dusted under the rug and overlooked as even being a thing uh, by so many so to even open up that conversation to say, hey, where did you start, though? What was your starting point? What, how many tools were in your toolbox at the beginning of your life and your learning? I think that does... Right. You're right. I mean, it makes a whole um, entire shift on where your direction is that you're about to go based on what you packed at the beginning of the journey, you know? Right, and that's something that struck me about Marshall when he told me when I was working for the GOC, he told me he had a double life sentence and my jaw dropped because I was just like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I would think that you would, you would be released tomorrow. And after getting to know him and learning his backstory, knowing that he was abandoned in a shelter at a young age because his mom was addicted to craft and his dad was addicted to the street life, where do you go? Where do you go when you're looking for family, when your family has deserted you for substance abuse? And what, what do you do? You know? Right. Someone's going to come along and try to try to woo you away. And not all those people are the right ones. And if you're, if you're a teenager, and which he was, and a lot of the men that were in, in, the prison that I worked at, I mean, they were so young. I couldn't believe how young they were and, you know, how many how many of them had that, had that same type of upbringing and the lack of the support system, the lack of leading in the family to be able to show you how to be right and uh, it makes me so sad. And imagine if every one of us listening would open our arms and offer support systems that that we have what we could do because ultimately like we've said before this is our community exactly exactly hello my name is marshall jones 
first artist one I wrote called Glass Shillings. Felt like a movie playing the day he sends me. Time stopped as I laid my head on the table, tears started to conquer the knees. Tears laced the face of my brother and told me don't cry like life imprisonment wasn't a good reason. Still remember that day. Glad to say the memory still follows me. Words conveyed but construed as expedient. Strangely, everything I promised I completed. You see, I'm nothing similar to the miscreant I used to be. I can be seen engaged in Bible study, counseling brothers, mediating conflict, appealing to their humanity. Questioning the ingrained skepticism, rendering the prisoner stagnant, combat the pundits who don't believe the opportunity exists. I sit with them until they envision their own lives diminished from the war against truth until they boldly defy statistics. The prison system needs people like me as a balancing point, managing the temperaments they don't understand, and trusted to discreetly calm these wounded spirits to help transform their thoughts of these men. When I asked, they pat themselves on the back, taking credit for my efforts, all while telling others I'm still a threat. Every moment presents a challenge, a decision to wrestle freedom from my captor's hands, look beyond the reservoir of fences to what truly lies ahead. A force dense with life, growing unrestricted, affecting the viewer with limitless pictures of blessings replenished. Endless fuel for my journey over ranges among some climb for preparation, others for restorations, while others master for the purpose of strengthening my legs, so I never tire. 20-hour days struggling to reach others before they suffer. Some days I feel my harvest haven't reaped enough. Reaching after the goals I set while battling disappointments, probably admitting that this grind gets tough. Drawn from the inspiration of people that broke through, the Roderick Bankstons, the Alice Johnsons, the Mayan Burrells, and the Centuria Browns, all found themselves crashing through their own glass ceilings. What did they do when their own strength couldn't accomplish it? When their assistance seemed so unlikely, how did they fight when they were too tired to sleep or kept their hearts from breaking? Carefully fatigued, I remember the day he sends me. Don't cry echoing. The haters retreating because I'll never stop beating until shards of glass fall on me. One day they asked how I disgraced the impossibility. How I've been set free. Thank you for listening to the Justified Anger podcast. Justified Anger is an initiative of Nehemiah. This podcast was made with the cooperation and collaboration of Rebecca Barber, Anthony Cooper, Aaron Hicks, Jeremy Holliday, Dr. Karen Reese, and Charlotte Miller. Also, thank you to Marshall Jones and Jessica Christensen. A special thank you to the individuals that shared their stories and experiences of incarceration. Some individuals' names are not included to protect their identity. Production and editing is by Eli Steenlich.